Chapter 15 The Hut Rut It's hard to say when the market first turned. Perhaps it was the high-profile demise of the Craterview condominium huts, built at the summit of the island's highest volcano. The huts, despite their amenities, ample square footage, and unmatched ocean and lava views, somehow failed to attract buyers. As Manny Fun was the principal underwriter of the project, the investment company took a big hit when the developer defaulted on the construction loan. When nervous real estate investors saw the losses at Craterview, many of them took a hard look at some of their risky real estate holdings. A distinct apprehension began to spread. Soon, buyers, both large and small, figured the market had peaked. Many decided that they should sell their current properties, take their frothy profits, and wait for a more favorable time to reinvest. There was just one problem. Everyone was thinking the same thing at the same time. Most of the owners in the market never intended to hold their properties very long to begin with. So when the market began to turn, everybody wanted out. In short order, the island was awash with sellers and devoid of buyers. When that happened, the unthinkable occurred. Prices didn't just decline in a modest, orderly fashion. They started plummeting. The hut glut had quickly turned into a massive hut rut. Suddenly, hut ownership, once a surefire ticket to easy wealth, became a decidedly riskier proposition. With prices no longer rising, huts didn't create any fish equity to extract, and profits from quick resales were no longer possible. With a pot of gold no longer looming at the end of the rainbow, uncomfortably high loan payments became a burden hardly worth bearing. The situation was further complicated when temporarily low introductory teaser rates reset higher, which made the homes instantly unaffordable to those buyers whose only hope had been a quick resale or a fish traction. With homes worth less than their underlying loans, the temptation to walk away from big payments became intense. This was especially true for those who did not put any fish down at purchase. Having made no prior commitment of funds, these borrowers had nothing to lose by not paying their mortgage and allowing the bank to foreclose. As more and more borrowers defaulted, Manny Fund's securitized loan business was soon declared bankrupt. The losses had overwhelmed the venerable institution. Shortly thereafter, both Fishy and Finney admitted that they, too, were belly up. With consumers no longer extracting hut equity, the industries that grew up around the hut glut also fell into crisis. Hut builders, design consultants, window trimmers, and appliance salespeople were laid off in droves. Other, seemingly disparate industries were impacted as well. The Usonian donkey cart makers had benefited greatly from hut equity extractions. Effortlessly pulling fish out of their appreciating huts had allowed islanders to buy bigger and bigger carts. In the go-go days, many of these wagons became so large that four or five donkeys were needed to pull them. And this was a problem because most of the donkeys were imported. With no more hut equity to tap into, sales of these so-called grass guzzlers plummeted and cart companies fell into bankruptcy. The island became ensnared in the worst economic crisis since the Great Monsoon of Frankie Deep's era.
growing desperate, the unemployed workers converged on the Senate, demanding solutions. Stimulus to the rescue. After years of denying any weakness in the economy, the island's senator-in-chief, Jim W. Bass, belatedly set to work fixing the problem. With strong unanimity, his advisors recommended bold incentives that would get consumers spending again, especially on huts. Without any understanding of why savings and production fuel economic growth, the Senate decided on a program of bailouts and stimuli. Their first rescue was for Finney and Fishy, which were taken over by the Senate directly and were stocked with new fish reserve notes to cover their losses. The reorganized companies were ordered by their new management, the Senate, to offer ultra-low-rate hut loans to anyone who had the wherewithal to fill out the application. It was hoped that the continued availability of easy credit would increase demand for huts and thereby stop the slide in prices. But when these policies failed to stem the fall, Bass called an emergency meeting of his top advisors, including Brent Barnacle, who had previously assured him that prosperity would be endless. Hey, Barney, said the senator-in-chief in his trademark folksy demeanor. You sure sold me a bill of goods on this one. I thought this economy thing was supposed to be simple. You know, they make them, we eat them, everyone gets a hut or two. I mean, how do we get the shark to smell the chum on this one? The other senators searched for the meaning of Bass's metaphor. Perhaps none existed. Uh, well, sir, the problem was quite simple, said Hank Plankton, the new head fish accountant. Hut prices are falling, so citizens don't feel as wealthy as they did before. As a result, they have stopped spending. If we can push hut prices back up, people will start spending again. Cool, Planky. I knew this was going to be a breeze, said Bass. But, but hey, how are we going to do that? Do, do we have someone in charge of that? Sounds like a cool job. Maybe I'll appoint one of my biggest donors. Uh, well, sir, it's not quite that simple, said Plankton. We can't just mandate that hut prices go back up. As you know, we have kept finny and fishy lending. Unfortunately, that alone is not enough. For some reason, people don't want to borrow. Perhaps the loan application is still too complicated. We're working on that. But for now, we need to push interest rates even lower and then give people more tax breaks to buy huts. That should create a lot of demand for loans, which would stop hut prices from falling and get the builders busy again. Reality check. The last thing the island needed was more huts. There were already too many huts. Any energy or resources spent building more huts would be wasted. Furthermore, hut prices were still too high. They had been bid up to ridiculous levels by a combination of factors that would never return. Trying to keep them from falling was like trying to keep a bridge from collapsing after all the supports had been knocked away. Despite the fact that many islanders were upset for having overpaid for their huts, the island economy would actually be better off if hut prices came down and buildings ceased altogether, at least until real demand returned. That way people could spend less on huts and have more to spend on things the economy lacked, like new businesses and carts that can be pulled by just one donkey. Resources used for new hut construction, like bamboo and rope, could be used for new businesses instead. Unfortunately, government intervention would prevent this natural reallocation of resources from occurring. Plankton continued laying out his plans, 
We also need to make sure that Nanny Fund remains solvent. The company owes a lot of fish to a lot of people. If they were to go down, the entire island economy would utterly collapse. We also need to make sure that no one who invested in Manny Fund loses any fish. If we don't do this, sir, I'm sure we would all starve, especially the children. Well, that ain't going to happen on my watch, Planky, replied Bass. Tell them we're going to come to the rescue with a bailout. Hey, didn't you used to work there? Uh, yes, Mr. Senator, I was the president of the company, but I really don't see how that has any relevance to this conversation, and frankly, I resent the insinuation. Oh, oh heck, Hank, I was, I was just funning, Bass continued. Okay, after we get hut prices back up and keep Manny and the boys in business, how are we going to get people spending again? Where are they going to get the fish? I mean, last time I checked, we were all a bit tapped in the tuna department. Isn't that why they're outside holding pitchforks? Uh, well, sir, we plan on distributing a new round of fish reserve notes to all the citizens. That should get them spending. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, but uh, where, where, where are we going to get the fish? I mean, haven't our technicians stretched the sturgeons about as far as they can? Well, sir, um, we have some new commitments from the Sinopians. They have offered to buy the waterwork system in full for 100,000 fish. <laughs> Hold on there, Honcho. Sell the waterworks? You're talking about jeopardizing our national security. Don't have me tarred and feathered for giving up something like that to those carpetbaggers. Couldn't they just make it a loan instead? After months of tense negotiations, Bass's ambassadors convinced the Sinopians that a sale of the waterworks was politically impossible. Instead, the Sinopians somewhat bitterly agreed to make a hundred thousand fish loan. Hey, Hanky, said Bass, after word came back of the successful outcome. Great news, we got the loan. Just one thing, how are we going to pay it back? Well, sir, I expect that we'll just print up another batch of fish reserve notes. But this time, we'll use our very best paper. Yeah, but what if they won't take them? Aren't we getting a lot of guff from them people already about the value of our notes? It's like that Chuck DeBongo guy a few years back. Won't they just start selling if we issue too many notes? Highly unlikely, sir. Think about how many fish reserve notes they already have. If they stop taking them, those notes will lose even more value. Fact is, we got them over a barrel. And if things get dicey, we'll just remind them of our strong fish policy. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. It's nice having that in your back pocket. Is that where we go out and catch more fish to back up our notes? Uh, no, sir, chimed in Brent Barnacle. The strong fish policy is all about tone. We don't actually do anything. We just say strong fish policy really clearly and loudly again and again. Also, it helps if you clench your fist and beat it on the table when you say the words. Right you are, Barney. Let's just say I know a little something about acting tough. Mission accomplished. Now let's go surfing. Takeaway. It's hard to overstate the impact the housing boom made on the economy as a whole. During the height of the mania, the financing, construction, and furnishing of homes had become the central dynamo of the U.S. economy. And while everyone acknowledged the good fortune, few spared much concern about the future cost. 
In addition to the profits made by the real estate flippers, those who serially bought and sold properties, homeowners extracted hundreds of billions of dollars per year from their homes. The process turned houses into tax-free ATM machines. People used the money to renovate their homes, take vacations, pay for college, buy cars and electronics, and just generally live better lives than they would have had their homes not appreciated in value. But the wealth was simply a mirage. In his book, Irrational Exuberance, economist Robert Schiller determined that in the 100 years between 1900 and 2000, home prices in the United States increased by an average of 3.4% per year, which is just slightly higher than the average rate of inflation. There were good reasons for this. Prices were firmly tied to people's ability to pay, which is a function of income and credit availability. But from 1997 to 2006, national home prices gained an astounding 19.4% per year on average. However, over that time, incomes barely budged. So why could people pay so much more? The difference was credit, which government policy made much cheaper and easier to get. But credit could not expand forever, and eventually conditions tightened. When they did, there was nothing to hold prices up. So when the market crested, the easy money that for years had poured into the economy stopped flowing, even if there had been no other economic reversals that followed the housing bust, which there were. The economy would have had to shrink without all that free cash. A recession was not only inevitable, but absolutely necessary to rebalance the economy. But when the economy started to contract, lawmakers and economists treated the development not as an inevitable consequence of years of easy money and overspending, but as the problem itself. In other words, they mistook the cure for the disease. The policy goals of both the Bush and Obama administrations have been to encourage consumers to spend as they had before the housing crash. But how? If unemployment rose and incomes and home prices fell, where would consumers get the money? Economists have declared that if the people can't spend, the government needs to step up and do it for them. But the government doesn't have any money. All it has is what it collects in taxes or what it borrows or prints. For now, this process is just creating massive public debt, $1.6 trillion per year and counting. And although the numbers look bad, we are still able to sell most of the debt on the open market, primarily to foreigners. But our so-called good fortune can't last forever. Ultimately, the U.S. government will have only two options. Default, tell our creditors that we can't pay and negotiate a settlement, or inflate, print money to pay off maturing debt. Either option will lead to painful consequences. Default, which does offer the possibility of a real reckoning and a fresh beginning, is actually the better alternative. Unfortunately, while inflation is worse, it is also the more politically expedient.